You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So John Donne, the 17th century poet and pastor, on his Christmas Day sermon way back in 1626, said this, Christ's birth and his death were but one continual act, and his Christmas Day and his Good Friday are but evening and morning of one and the same day. What John Donne is saying is that there is an inextricable, unbreakable link between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. In fact, we see this often in some of our Christmas carols. Here's one from What Child Is This? Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word may flesh. The babe, the son of Mary. You see how that Christmas carol is tying together the birth of Christ as well as the death of Christ. We know that Advent is a season marked by hope and joy and peace and love. And yet, there is a shadow that looms over the manger. Jesus was born and placed in a manger in Bethlehem so that one day he would be hung on a wooden cross on Calvary. See, Christmas can never be fully understood or appreciated apart from the cross. So this morning we're continuing in our Advent series, King of Kings. And we've looked at how so far Jesus is the promised coming King. How he's the promised Savior long foretold and is now here. And last week we looked at how we are to respond to the King in worship. And now this week we want to behold the King. As we look at how Jesus, the King of Kings, lays down his life for his people to accomplish his purpose of salvation. And as we behold the king this morning, we'll do so in three movements. So first, we'll look at the trajectory of the king. We will see that the cradle points to the cross, that there has always been a cruciform, a cross-shaped shadow looming over the manger. So we'll see the trajectory of the king. Second, we'll look at the tragedy of the king. We will go to Calvary. We'll fast forward 33 years in his life and we will see the king of the Jews who suffered and died in our place for our sins. And third, we will look at the triumph of the king. We'll see that the suffering king is also the triumphant king who has defeated death by his death, risen from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God and is now the king of kings and lord of lords. So let's look together in Luke chapter 2 to see the trajectory of the king. Now we're going to be in several different texts this morning. So today we're going to start in Luke chapter 2. Now um, before we uh, get into the text, let me set the scene. So at this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus has been born. The shepherds have come and marveled and worshipped. The choir of angels has sung, lit up the night sky, but now they have departed. 
Months, uh, about 40 days have gone by and it's time for Joseph and Mary to head to Jerusalem for purification and dedication. So there's two things going on in Jewish law here. First, according to Jewish law, 40 days after giving birth to a son, a woman needed to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice in order to become ceremonially clean once again. Birth is beautiful. It's also bloody and messy. It's all of those things wrapped up into one. And because um, a, a, the woman will come into contact with blood, she becomes ceremonially unclean. And Jewish law required ceremonial purification. Now, let me just state the obvious. Giving birth is not sinful in any way. Sometimes we think that all sacrifices were for sin, and that's not the case. Uh, Jewish uh, ceremonial law is much more nuanced than that. It's not about morality, but it's about um, meeting the requirements to enter into God's presence. In order to, uh, to maintain right worship with God, you had to be clean. And in order to do that, she needed to offer um, a sacrifice. So that's the first Jewish thing going on. The second is dedication. They bring Jesus um, to the temple in Jerusalem in order to offer the sacrifice for the redemption of the firstborn son. Now, if you have been with us the last several weeks, this should sound really familiar to you because we preached a whole sermon on Exodus chapter 13 where the institution, the beginning, the inauguration of the the redemption of the firstborn happened. We see this back in Exodus 13. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. By way of reminder, God had redeemed Israel out of slavery through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And so the logic goes like this. Because God had redeemed them, they needed to redeem their firstborn sons. Every firstborn son belongs to God. He had, he had paid the price to redeem them out of uh, slavery. And so in order for the people to get their sons back, they had to offer a sacrifice, this redemptive sacrifice in order to buy back their sons. So from that point on in Exodus 13 all the way throughout the the centuries, firstborn sons were brought to the temple. Parents would offer a sacrifice in order to purchase that son's redemption and buy him back. Now why would God do this? God did this not because he's stingy or not that that he needed this sacrifice. It was to uh, put in place a perpetual reminder of God's redemptive work in their lives. Why? Because we are so prone to forget. It's so easy for us to go about our day-to-day lives without thinking about considering the reality that God has redeemed us, that we were bought with a price, that we are not our own. We can easily forget the good things that God has done. And so this was God's grace to them to offer a perpetual reminder, oh yeah, I am not my own. I'm a, I'm a freed, beloved child of God because of what God did on my behalf. So they head to the temple to fulfill this dedication, this this sacrifice of the firstborn son. And on this trip to the temple, they meet a man named Simeon. Luke tells us there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was Upon him. 
and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. So I love Simeon. He's one of my favorite characters in this part of Luke's gospel. He's just a regular guy. He's a layman. He is, he's not a priest. That's not what he's doing. He is just a normal, average, everyday guy who lives in Jerusalem. And here's what we're told about him. Wouldn't it be awesome if this is just what was said about us in our life? When you think about who you are, they go, yeah, he is righteous and devout. Oh, her, yeah, she's righteous and devout. And he was looking for, longing for the deliverance of Israel. He had his eyes set on God's redemption. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So here's what this means. He had a drive in him to obey God's law. That's what it means to be righteous. Not that he did it perfectly, but there was a drive. There was a strong desire to go, I want to live for the Lord. If he says it, I want to obey it. And he was devout, meaning in the everyday stuff of life, he was thoughtful, he was mindful, and he was faithful for what he was doing. He lived with a, with a, um, a God consciousness. He was just aware of the Lord all the time. In other words, you could just say it like this. Simeon walked closely with the Lord. And when we meet him in Luke's gospel, he's nearing the end of his life. And then we're told this other fact about him that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that before he died, he would see the Messiah. He would actually see him with his eyes. Now, I just want you to remember, Israel, at this point in their history, has been under one oppressive regime after another. If you go all the way back to 722 B.C. with the northern kingdom, 586 B.C. with the southern kingdom, since that point when they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon, they have never been their own free, sovereign nation. They were allowed to go back to the land and they, they enjoyed some trappings of freedom, but it was always under the watchful, oppressive eye of another country. And their political oppression at this point in their life is only eclipsed by the fact that the nation as a whole is really struggling spiritually. There's not been a prophet for over 400 years. It's just silence. And they've been waiting for God to send a deliverer. And so there's just this anticipation, this longing. When will Messiah come to bring comfort, consolation, a relief of our oppression and suffering? Passages like Isaiah 51 and verse 3 would have just been stored up in Simeon's heart to remind him of that promised deliverance. Certainly the Lord will console Zion. He will console all her ruins. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Happiness and joy will be restored to her, thanksgiving and the sound of music. So God had promised that he would send a Messiah, and Simeon had put his hope and his trust in God to fulfill that promise. And as Mary and Joseph walk into the temple, by the power and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, somehow, some way, he knows when he sees that child, that's the Messiah. I can't explain to you how he knew. There's mystery there. But somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit, as Simeon has his eyes 
looking for the Messiah, the Holy Spirit locked his eyes and his gaze on Jesus. And then Simeon reaches for the child. And again, in ways that I can't explain, Mary handed her baby to this man. Like that doesn't happen. A newborn mom does not walk around and just go, oh, old guy, here, hold my baby. That doesn't happen. But Mary saw something in Simeon, and Simeon saw something in Mary. And as they locked eyes, like he knew something, and she knew something, and he reached out for the child, and and she just instinctively said, here. And he held Jesus in his hands, and he just burst into praise. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Jesus, uh, Simeon holds the light of the world and he knows this is the light. He is, he is here for your glory. Now, so far, everything in the scene matches the brightness of Advent, right? We talk about uh, uh, how uh, those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Simeon is, is, is doubling up on this, uh, this language and saying, Here, here's the light, to, a, a revelation to the Gentiles. And so you, in, into the darkness, this light is crescendoing. And everything in this scene is filled with peace and hope and love and joy. But then comes the first minor chord of Christmas, the first shadow that looms. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In all of the mix of joy, Simeon's disposition grows somber as he begins to reveal, yes, he is the light of the world, but the road ahead will be difficult. I love the way Russ Ramsey depicts this scene in his Advent narrative, Behold the Lamb of God. Russ writes this, his smile faded. The joy never left his eyes, but gravity pulled at his countenance. He grew serious. There was more to say because there was more to this little life than met the eye. All that Simeon had said so far was about what Jesus would do, and now it was time to broach the subject of how he would do it. He told Mary a truth she must have already sensed, that Jesus would turn the world on its ear, and it would come at a great cost. Her baby would facilitate the ruin of many in Israel. Like a stump from Jesse's root, he would jut out and break the toes of any who dared to tread upon the purpose for which he had come. Jesus would reveal the hearts of all mankind. The light of the world would shine in every dark corner of every dark heart, exposing every dark secret. And this was a world that had grown quite fond of darkness. It was no surprise that he would be opposed. And then he told Mary, Mary, what awaits your son, the suffering that he will endure will be like a double-edged broadsword that will pierce through your soul. 
The angel had told Mary that his name was to be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. The angel gave the what, and Simeon is giving the how, that it would be through suffering. So as the gospel unfolds, we know that the world will reject Christ. He will face trials and suffering, eventually climaxing in his crucifixion on a Roman cross. Jesus, like Simeon said, would become a dividing line in the sand. The offer of salvation is extended to all, but not all will receive it. Each person has to consider the offer and make a decision. And for many, the cross will seem foolish. It will seem absurd and they will reject it. And that rejection will lead to their fall. That's why Simeon said Christ will lead to the rise and fall of many. Those who receive Christ, it will be to their, to their elevation. And those who reject him, it will be to their demise. 33 years later, Mary would sit at the foot of the cross. She would watch her son be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. She would watch her son be crucified and lifted up on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. And you know the words of Simeon came flooding into her mind, that this was the moment when that double-edged broadsword pierced through her soul. It gives a fuller meaning to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us... A, son, a child is born, to us a son is given. How is it that a son is given? It's through his sacrifice. See, friends, the Advent manger sits in the shadow of the Easter cross. Redemption comes at a cost. Peace comes through conflict. And joy will come through suffering. As we behold Christ, the newborn king this morning... We see this trajectory already on his life. He's, he's only 40 days old, and yet the trajectory has been set. Now let's go to Calvary. Let's fast forward and see and behold the king of the Jews who suffered and died in our place for our sins. This is the tragedy of the king. Look with me at John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him, hailing, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing, out to you, bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Again, since we're kind of parachuting into this chapter, let me set the scene. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been falsely charged and gone through um, one mob trial already with the Jewish high priest that went late into the night. And now it's early in the morning and they've brought him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Jerusalem. So it's, it's early on Friday morning. Pilate has questioned Jesus. John tells us three different times he's found no guilt, uh, no reason to punish him. And so he tries to release Jesus. But the mob of Jews are insistent that Jesus be punished. And so Pilate gives in to their demands and he has Jesus flogged. 
Thankfully, flogging is not something, it's not part of our criminal justice system today. Flogging was a brutal act of torture where you would take a whip and to the the end uh, you would add shards of glass and metal and stone attached to the ends of the whips and they would literally unleash hell on your back. And then to add insult to injury, the soldiers fashioned a crown made of long, sharp uh, thorns and they pressed it into his head. If you think about the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths has descended into the depths of suffering and now they wrap him in a purple robe and they mock him, the king of the Jews. The irony, of course, is that he is the king of the Jews and not only that, even truer than they know, he is the one true king of kings. Now at this point in the story, Pilate is ready to be done. He's just very nervous about executing Jesus. He has tried at every possible way to get Jesus out of this ordeal. And so he flogs him in order that the people would get the blood that they're seeking. He figures, listen, like look at him. I've given them blood. I have beaten this man to the brink of death. Surely after mocking him and humiliating him, surely this will suffice. Surely this will be enough for them to go, okay, let him go. And surely, as they behold the man, they will say, enough is enough. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is the second time in John's narrative that Pilate has declared Jesus not guilty, and yet the mob demands that they crucify Jesus. And essentially what's going on here, uh, the Jews are not permitted by their law to crucify anybody, and they want the Roman government to do their dirty work. And as the morning goes on, uh, on this Good Friday morning, it goes back and forth between Pilate and the people because Pilate doesn't want to crucify him, and yet at the same time, he, did, he wants to avoid political upheaval because he's got pressure. Everybody's got a boss, you know what I mean? So Pilate, uh, he faces pressure. The Roman government wants peace. They want order. And so if there's this upheaval, it'll look bad on Pilate. And so he doesn't want to look bad, and yet he wishes this whole thing would go away, but it won't. And then around noon, in verse 14, we see this. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to be crucified. Now, as I was reading this passage this week, I kept asking, this is like the second time Pilate has presented Jesus to the people. Like, why is he doing that? Why is he saying, behold the man, behold the king? This word behold, it comes from the word to see, but it's in the imperative form. So it's a, it's a command. He's saying, um, be sure to see this. Like, look at him. Don't turn your eyes away from him. Pay attention. Don't miss this. And the great irony of ironies, Pilate is saying, look at Jesus. Just look at him. What do you see? 
When you look at Christ, that you look at him in his suffering, if you look at him clothed in this, this, this purple robe, what do you see? And again, in true words, and even Pilate knows, he's telling him, you should see your king. Behold your king. That's what you should see. He's innocent. He's been beaten near to death. And yet the people are blind. They're adamant in their rejection of Jesus. And so Pilate gives in and has Jesus crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So John tells us that Pilate makes a sign, an inscription over the cross that says King of the Jews. And to make sure everyone can read it, it's written in the three most spoken languages of the region at that time. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Basically, anybody who can read will be able to know exactly what it says. And of course, the Jews, they disapprove of the sign. They want to edit it because they don't like what it's proclaiming. And yet, that's who Jesus is. He is the King of the Jews. And Pilate refuses to change it what i have written i have written and what i want you to see is that jesus's crucifixion qualifies him to be their king had jesus refused the will of the father he would have forfeited his right to be their messiah king jesus is walking in obedience fulfilling all of the necessary requirements in order to be the messiah king And though the soldiers clothed him in royal robes as a sadistic form of mockery, in another sense, they are appropriately clothing him. This whole scene is just filled with irony. And as they sarcastically cry out, Hail, King of the Jews, they're actually speaking truer words than they themselves could comprehend. And as Pilate wrote what he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, he was sealing for all time, the reality that Jesus really is the king. Now just consider, we've, we've looked at that statement, Jesus, king of the Jews, last week and this week. And if you think about it, they're really bookends of his life. You know, when, when the Magi come, they come to worship Christ who was born the king of the Jews. And here we are at the end of his life, hail the king of the Jews. They form bookends of his life. The pagan magi travel a great distance to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. And here, some 30-odd years later, he's lifted on a Roman cross with a sign declaring the king of the Jews. What's the point? The point is, the bookends of his life, his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and morning of one and the same day. The cries from the cradle foreshadow the cries from the cross. Pastor John Payne wrote this. The soft, tiny hands 
that clung to the Virgin Mary would one day be pierced through by sharp iron spikes. The infant brow, tenderly caressed by Joseph, would years later be brutally punctured by a crown of thorns. Newborn tears would in the future give way to soul-wrenching cries of anguish at Gethsemane and Calvary. Seven Mile, God sent his eternal son, Emmanuel, God with us, to be born like us in order that he might save us. He was more than just a good teacher, more than just a good example of how to live, of which he was those things. But more than that, God sent his son to perfectly fulfill the requirements of his law. And then as a righteous substitute, the perfect spotless lamb, he satisfied God's justice and wrath on Calvary. Friends, the Christmas tree in your living room, and some of you have like five or six of them. The Christmas tree with all the presents underneath is a beautiful reminder A beautiful reminder that God has given us the greatest gift of all in Jesus Christ. That's what the gifts are supposed to point to. They're supposed to point to we are giving gifts as a people who have been so blessed. Because why? We have the greatest gift. And when Christmas trees are viewed this way, they do help us celebrate the birth of Christ. But I would like to add to that image another image for your Christmas tree because... The Christmas tree also points us to that cursed tree, the wooden cross where Jesus hung, not for your sins, but for yours and mine. You see, in, in, in Jewish uh, theology and in Jewish uh, terminology, they speak of the cross as a cursed tree. And so right there in your living room with all the presents underneath is a reminder both of the gift of Christ, and the gift of Christ. Both his birth and his death all wrapped up in one beautiful gift. As one pastor wrote, I cannot talk about Christmas without touching on the theme of Good Friday and pointing out that the crib and the cross are hewn out of the same wood. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he And he was looking to Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, never forget this very simple and yet profound gospel statement. Jesus came to save sinners. That's what it's all about. We see that in the trajectory and the tragedy of the king. Let's continue to behold our king as we see his triumph. Look with me at Philippians chapter five or chapter two, verse five through eight. Paul writes this: Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love it. You see here in Philippians, Paul bringing together Christmas Day and Easter morning, isn't he? He brings together Christmas and Calvary. Christmas looks at the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the eternal son of God. 
who added to his fully divine nature a fully human nature, two natures in one person. That's what's happening in the incarnation. If you're thinking that's impossible, well, it's a good thing that the angel Gabriel told us that nothing is impossible with God. And if the Son of God taking on human flesh weren't enough humility, Paul says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, that's him pointing to Calvary. So here we go, Christmas and Calvary together. The Roman statement and order Cicero once said, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Now you've got a guy whose professional job it is to speak words, and he is now speechless when it comes to the cross. Even the Romans, who had perfected crucifixion, found this form of execution to be so horrible a deed that there really were no fitting words to describe it. And that's what we see Jesus bearing that humility of being not just uh, put to death, but put to death by the humiliation of the cross. And so Paul goes on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Paul has walked us through this this trajectory and this tragedy, and now he highlights for us the triumph of Christ. This is the crowning of the King of Kings. See, friends, Jesus didn't merely die as a martyr. He died and rose again as a conqueror over sin and death. And so this Christmas... Not only do I want you to see the baby in the manger, not only do I want you to see the Savior on the cross, I want you to see the King in his glory. Don't stop at the shadow that looms over him. Keep looking all the way to see the victory of the empty tomb. The depth of his descent into the grave is outmatched by the height of his ascent to the right hand of the Father. And not only is he crowned King of Kings, but he's also Lord of Lords. And Paul tells us his name is a name that is above every single name. So how do we properly behold the King this morning? Three quick points of application. First, we remember the cross at Christmas. I know it's Christmas time and, and, and there's something in us that wants to um, not move past that and go to the cross because it's kind of morbid and somber. But I think the right way to look at Christmas was, is always with a shadow. It doesn't mean you don't see the manger. It doesn't mean we don't have the lights and the joy and the, and the, the hope of Advent, but it also has a shadow. There's a cruciform shadow that looms over the manger. This eternal trajectory has always been God's plan of redemption, and it was set into motion the moment Jesus was conceived. I've tried to draw out that trajectory for us this morning, and here in Philippians, Paul does the same thing. He moves from incarnation to crucifixion in a matter of a few sentences. 
These doctrines go together and they help us consider the depth and the height of the ministry of Jesus on our behalf. We need to remember because we are so prone to forget, especially at Christmas time. There's going to be a lot more on our calendars. There's a lot more errands to run. We get busy. We get distracted. And when that happens, we get complacent and we forget the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas is the cross. And before long, we get entitled, we get prideful, and we get ungrateful. And there's just no recognition that our lives are overwhelmingly graced by the generosity of Christ. Have you ever been given a really big gift? Like something that when you opened it, it wowed you. Maybe it was a check. Maybe it was a bonus. Maybe it was just the, the, the generosity of, 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 of people who care for you. And when you sit in that, in that moment, you're, you're just kind of overwhelmed. Like, I can't believe someone would see me and love me so much that they would give this gift. How quick does that feeling fade? How many days does it take before you don't even think about it anymore? It's just wrapped up in the human condition of sin. That no matter how big a gift we get, we really quickly forget it. And we become entitled and ungrateful. And friends, there is no greater gift that you've been given than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, redemption at the cost of his innocent blood for your life. How quickly do we forget? The reality is that we need constant reminders. Without the anchor of the cross, we will get off-centered. And when we're off-centered, we spin off into all sorts of prideful selfish, sinful ways. A constant looking at the cross keeps us humble and grateful. This Advent season, remember the cross at Christmas. Second, recognize Christ as King. Paul reminds us that Jesus is Lord, the one to whom every knee should bow. And the reality is this, there is coming a day when every knee will bow to him. See, when Paul is writing this, there's still an opportunity for you to bow. Those who haven't bowed can bow because there's still time. And Paul's saying, listen, Jesus has a name that everyone should bow to. But regardless of what you do in this life, at some point in the culmination of history, every knee will bow to him. Christ in his first advent came vulnerable, as vulnerable as a baby boy. He came with a purpose to die in our place for our sins. But friends, let me tell you, in his second coming, when Christ comes again, he will come invincible. First coming, vulnerable. Second coming, invincible. And his purpose will be to judge the living and the dead. And friends, let me tell you, Christ always accomplishes the purposes for which he comes. And only those who have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord will be pardoned with him to reign with him. And not only that, but even now as we confess him as king, we can't just merely confess him as king. We need to obey him and honor him as king. See, a king 
is not someone you bargain with or negotiate with. Listen, I know, 1776, we left the whole monarchy thing behind for a representative democracy, and I'm so thankful for that. And so sometimes we think like, well, I can negotiate with God. That's like, like that's how this thing works, right? Democracy, I get, to, I get to have a voice. Friends, there's no democracy in the Bible. God does not come as your, like just as your, uh, your, your representative, as, 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 as if we're just constituents who get to tell him what we want and he goes into Congress and makes those things happen. No, Christ comes as your king. He is your authority. You do not negotiate or bargain with him. A king rightly gets to decree what is right and what is wrong. And our response is to be one of obedience and worship. So how are you doing with that? Do you honor Christ as king? Do you confess him as your king? And do you obey him as your Lord? Remember the cross at Christmas. Recognize Christ as king. And finally, resemble the king. Paul's whole point in this passage is that good doctrine leads to good living. If you read the verses right before, he's giving encouragement for Christians to live in a humble and grateful and sacrificial kind of way. And then he gives the doctrine of Christmas and Calvary as the reasons that should compel you to do that. Good doctrine informing good practice. He shows how Christ perfectly embodied humility and gratitude and sacrifice. And he says, so, therefore, if you believe in him and you confess him as your Lord, you should begin to resemble him. You should, your life should start to look like him. See, as we behold the king, as we worship him, we should become more and more like him. D.A. Carson wrote this, we will resemble what we worship for our ruin or our restoration. I read that phrase a decade ago and it's just stuck with me. Whatever you worship, you will resemble. You will become that which you behold. And it will either lead to your ruin or your restoration. Whatever you look at as most valuable, you will become like it. You will emulate it. You will follow in its trajectory. One of the best ways you can behold the king is to become like him. Seven miles, we lean into the final week's of Advent. Let's behold the king. Let's consider the trajectory that was on his life from the beginning. Let's be willing to look at the cross to behold the king and his suffering for our sins in our place. And let's celebrate and honor our triumphant king.